James 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Strong words. So as we begin our study of these words of warning from the Lord about being tempted and being enticed into sin, may we keep in mind that each of these exhortations that we've been studying about over these past few weeks have directly to do with this matter spoken about here in verse 2 and following, the testing of our faith. Listen again to those words beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, whether our testing comes through doubts that arise to plague our faith, as we read here in verse 6, or it comes through struggles with our finances, as we've studied in verses 9 through 11, or is here today with all these many forms of temptation that arise in our lives. It all has to do with this one thing with the trying and the testing of our faith. So what God's talking about, that's what He's dealing with in these words. But as we do this study, we always have to keep in mind that none of these trials, whatever they may be, in whatever form they come, they'll not come to us without having first been approved of by God. And God is our loving and protective Father. Now that realization is often very difficult for us to keep in mind and to accept as we go through these trials. That God is personally and intimately involved in each and every difficulty and trial that we encounter. But He is. And as our loving Father, He loves us more deeply than we could ever imagine. And He knows how very important faith is in the relationship that we have with Him. He knows that for our faith to strengthen and to grow, it must be exercised. It must be tested and tried. Recall those exhortations there in Hebrews 12 that I gave last week. He says in Hebrews 12:5, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you are enduring chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Precious words. And then he says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You and I can buck up against the trials. We can try to find a quick and easy way out of it. But we'll not be blessed by our doing that. And may I give a side encouragement to 
us as parents. We must not be so quick to reach in and pull our children's feet out of the fire. This may be taking place with them. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, and it will not to them or to us watching them suffer. But it is painful. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we allow those that we love to go on through that chastening, they'll be blessed, far more blessed than us pulling their feet out of the fire each time. We need to also recall that God the Father demonstrated this very same kind of chastening and trials with the Lord Jesus, His Son. Listen and turn turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. I want us to read Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the account of Jesus being tempted by the devil. Verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now again, It is so very important for us to remember and to accept that God is a loving Father who knows how to disciple and to train up His children in ways of righteousness. And nowhere is His hands-on involvements in the trials and testing and the training up of our faith better demonstrated than here in these words of Matthew 4. It was God's own Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. These are plain and simple words. Verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Those are some of the most mysterious and puzzling words in all of Scripture. Mysterious and puzzling words. And folks, there are many people who have studied these words and they've come to very confused conclusions about what these words mean. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Those people, especially those who have never come to know the heart of God and to trust Him, these words here, they're not only confusing, they can even seem as if they conflict. And and I'm not speaking of just those who don't know Christ, but even those who do know Him, but have their own agenda as to who God is. They can see a conflict between these words of Matthew 4, verse 1, and the words here in James 
1 verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now those people who would argue and debate about these words, the words of James 1 and the words of Matthew 4, they would say that if you lead someone into temptation, then you are taking part in that temptation. And to consider anything different is a matter of semantics. Now perhaps you personally have never taken the opportunity to ponder that argument. But may I say to you, that the reason that they are here in this passage is that God desires for you and me to study them, to ponder them carefully. And then if we have a, or we sense a conflict between those passages, then we need to resolve those in our hearts and minds. That's what he wants us to do by presenting them to us here. It does us no good. It does us no good at all when we encounter tough scriptures to just turn and ignore them or to skip over them. God sincerely desires for you and me to study scriptures such as these and to resolve them. That is where our faith that's being tested with all of this must rise up and confront the doubts. The doubts about what we really already know about God. That God really is ever and always a loving Father. That He is always good and He always does good and that He is always pure and holy. And God absolutely cannot be tempted by anyone and neither will He tempt anyone. And no, we might not ever be able to fully comprehend exactly what God is saying and doing in this. But God always still remains pure and holy. God wants us to know Him and His personality. To know Him so well that we can trust when we read these deeper things. You and I need to come to that point where we believe and trust Him so devoutly that we can know that yes, He does. He does ordain and He does create all the things and the matters of creation. Even some of the things that are very undesirable in our minds. The presence of temptation and sin. And He actually did lead the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But listen, in all of His ordaining and His leading and His doing, He Himself will never be the causer of the actual sin or the temptation to sin. He'll never be the actual tempter. It's just as these words tell us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Do you believe what these scriptures are saying? Now as for temptation itself, yes, you and I will often be tempted. But we need to remember that our being tempted does not mean that we have sinned. Now let me say that again. By our being tempted, that does not mean that we have sinned. Too often, devoutly believing Christians don't understand that. They get it mixed up in their mind. And yes, temptation usually is one of the first stages, one of the beginning points that does often lead to sin. But just the incident of our being tempted is not a sin in itself. 
as long as we turn from those temptations and not let them have their way, we have not sinned. That's exactly what Jesus did. He was tempted. How do we know he was tempted? Scripture tells us that that's why God led him into the desert. What did he do? He turned from those temptations and he did not let them have their way. Thankfully, one of the most blessed of all the graces of God is that He puts within every temptation a special turning point, an escape route. A temptation may be strong, and it may be enticing. It may have all the things that we like within it. That's usually what tempts us, things we like. But no matter how much we're tempted to go ahead on into a sin, we will always, always have a moment of opportunity to turn away from that sin and run. He assured us of that. In plain words, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, there he says to us, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Precious words. Precious words. And we praise the Lord for that mercy and grace. But with that being said, unfortunately, as we know, there are times when we don't listen to and we don't hear God's still small voice as He warns us away from those temptations and sin. And we suddenly then find that we have gone ahead and we've stepped across that line into sin. And then unfortunately, as soon as we step across that line, what do we find waiting on us? Even more and more pitfalls. Instead of our confessing our sins immediately and turning from them, too often our minds and our consciences reach for some other form of absolution. And too often... Our first line of defense is to blame someone else. Blame someone else. Do you do that? That's what took place in that first sin. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. I want us to read what took place when Adam and Eve were tempted and they fell into sin. And notice in this, their first misguided option was not to repent, but to instead blame somebody else. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8. They, that being Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Now here Adam and Eve had been tempted by the devil to want to have more than God had provided for them. Especially in the matter of authority and decision making. 
And in their desire for more, they sin. And then to compound that sin that they had already committed, instead of confessing their sins and repenting of them, they immediately sought to pass off their guilt to someone else. Adam chose to blame not only his wife, but also God. He said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. So here Adam is blaming God. He says, God, it was your fault. You made the first mistake by giving me this woman. Now that is a paraphrase, and I realize it, but that's exactly what he was saying to God. It was this woman that you, you gave to me. So you're accountable, God, for having given this woman to me. And then next, Adam says, it was the woman's fault for giving me the fruit. And then Eve turns around in the same manner. She said, it was the serpent. He deceived me. And I ate. Now it is true. It is true that in most all situations, the devil and his demonic minions are always at work. They're always doing what they do best. They're tempting us and they're causing us to think and to do things that are sinful. But folks, God cannot put it any plainer than He has here in these words. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Adam didn't necessarily have those words, but he knew he shouldn't do it. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, yes, God did create Adam and Eve, and He created you and me. And He created us with all the faculties and the abilities to think and to do things, even sinful things. Does that make God evil? Many have debated that point. But may I say to you, He Himself is not responsible for the responses that we have to all these many difficulties and temptations that we face each day. It is much like with our own children. We can father our children, we can birth them, but their behaviors will be completely up to them and they will each be accountable for each of their misdoings. Now here in verses 14 and 15, God gives us this clear explanation of exactly how we get from where we are before we sin to where we don't want to be when we do sin. He tells us that, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now with Adam and Eve, we don't know how long Eve questioned her position in life. If she walked his garden paths every day saying, I really want to be more than I am. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I want to think for myself. We don't know. Perhaps it was a long, long time or it might have been just that one moment when Satan made that suggestion to her that she ought to be dissatisfied with God's provision. But however long it was, a desire for more entered somewhere in the back of her mind. 
And then that desire then mulled around and around until she suddenly realized, wait, I really can have what I am desiring. Now she did not know the pitfalls of what that was going to gain for her. But she did realize suddenly that she could have what she desired. That she could make decisions for her own self. She didn't have to depend on God or wait on Him. And then as her desire realized that it could be fulfilled, it was conceived into sin. And then her sin was birthed and immediately her soul died. Now how Adam became involved we aren't told. All that we know are the words that are given here that says that Eve took of the fruit and gave it to Adam who was with her. Those words are simple. They're as simple as they sound. Adam was actually right there with Eve during all of her rigors of being beguiled and tempted. And then the Lord over in the New Testament gives us a word about that. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Told simply, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What does that mean? It means that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Adam was not deceived, meaning that he had a clearer head and he was actually able to think well through all that was taking place. But still, even with that ability to think through it, he let his desires lure him down that path towards sin. And then a sin was conceived within his heart. He also died. That is why so often you see in these scriptures Adam having to bear all of the accountability or most all of the accountability for that first sin. She fell into it. That's what these words tell us. And that's what that word means. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. Adam walked into it, head held high. And so I agree. He was far more accountable. But both of them fell. Both of them ended up in this sin. And how sad for them both. But listen, even more, how sad for all of us. Every person born after them. Because in that moment that Adam and Eve sinned and died, we all died. Now to put that in modern terms, at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, their DNA changed. And immediately a genetic predisposition to sin was born within them. And then also consequently later on within us. A genetic predisposition that cannot be overcome by us with any effort at all from us or all of our efforts, it can only be overcome by a whole new birth. We died in that sin and we must be reborn. A birth which has to come from above as we're told in John chapter 3, born again in Christ. Our time is up and I'll need to close. Please do ponder these words carefully. Know who God is and know what is intended here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God.
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray.